Well, may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I invite you to open your New Testament to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And there you will find our sermon text for this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 through 5. I'd like to read the sermon text and then enter into the sermon. And what we're going to do today is see two things. One is we'll see in this text that all were baptized. And then we're going to look at the very scary word, nevertheless, in verse 5. All were baptized, nevertheless. And so we're going to hear a blessing and we're going to hear a warning. A blessing and a warning. And so let's hear the word of God from 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. This is a very interesting retelling of the old story of the Passover exodus. It's retold by the Apostle Paul in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the reasons Paul is telling this story, the way he tells it and when he tells it in the context of this letter, is because he's dealing with a congregation of people who have divided over the practice of baptism. If you go back to chapter 1, you see that people were claiming to be of different apostles and teachers. I am of Paul. I am of Kephas, I am of Apollos. Some even said, no, I am of Christ. And so the point is that baptism, which should be a sign and seal of our union and communion with Christ, had become for the people in Corinth a point of division and fracture. Later on in the letter, Paul says, all of us were baptized by one spirit into one body. And yet he's looking at a congregation of people who are fractured and divided. Another reason he tells the story is, if you know anything about the church at Corinth, is they had more problems than just schism and, and division. This was a congregation of people who were very worldly. They were a worldly church in many ways. Paul refers to them as being spiritually immature, babes in Christ. They're still in Christ, and they're still justified by faith, and they're being sanctified by the Spirit, but it's a very messy congregation. And so you have people with all kinds of issues. You have people who are actually practicing idolatry, You've got people engaged in sexual immorality. You've got people struggling to understand uh, purity in marriage. You also have people who have doctrinal and theological problems. Later in the book, you find that this is a people who doesn't necessarily believe in the resurrection of the body. 
And so this is one of the messiest congregations any of us could ever imagine to be a part of. You're not a congregation like this. I'm simply saying that that's where they were. And the reason Paul tells this story when and where he does in the letter is because he wants to remind them, on one hand, that like their forefathers who were all baptized into Moses, they have all been baptized into Christ. And while the people of God in the Old Testament who were baptized into Moses experienced all of these wonderful things, the sacraments of the Old Testament, those things were shadows and types of the reality which was to come. And so the people of God in Corinth are experiencing the realities to which those former shadows pointed. In other words, you Corinthians have it so much better than your forefathers did. What in the world are you thinking? What in the world are you doing? You are in Christ. And so he tells this story to remind them of their place in the story of God. I know that a variety of pastors come out and preach to you, and I'm sure that more than one of them have said at one time or another that story shapes life. I know you've heard that from some of our pastors. Story shapes life, and we are a part of God's story. And Paul is reminding the Corinthian church, and we're reminded as well, that we're a part of God's story. And here's what it looks like. If you go back, if you don't know the story of the Old Testament very well, or maybe you've forgotten a few things, notice what Paul is doing here. He's reading the Old Testament story in light of Christ. And he uses language and images that the Old Testament itself does not use. For example, if you go back and read the story of the Exodus in Exodus 12, 13, and 14, you will see the people of God leaving Egypt and making their way to the Red Sea and getting pinned in on the shore of the sea. The sea is in front of them, rocky mountains to one side and the Egyptian army bearing down from the other. The wind begins to blow. Moses stands and prays all night, his arms lifted. The wind is blowing in the faces of God's people as they look at the sea and wonder how they will cross, where they will go, what will happen. Many are thinking, we're going to die when the Egyptians get here. We're wiped out because they're pinned in. And all the story tells us in the Old Testament is that the the wind of God opened the sea up and Moses led the children of Israel across the sea, across the Red Sea on dry ground. The cloud of God leading the way and they reached the far side of the Red Sea. The Egyptians army follows them into that. The waters collapse upon them and they perish. But God's people were delivered. The point of all of that is nowhere in that story does Moses say, the children of Israel were baptized into me. The word baptism is not even used in that story. So why in the world would Paul use it? Because he's reading the story through the lens of Jesus Christ, and Christ reshapes our understanding of what the story of God is all about. The children of Israel were baptized into Moses. They were brought into union with Moses, the lawgiver, the mediator, the one that God had appointed to 
to stand over them, over the house of God and judge and, and bring them into the promised land. So he was the shadow type of the deliverer who is Jesus. But it's interesting that what happens at the Red Sea is described as a baptism. It's described as a baptism. I want you to notice a few things here. This will encourage you. Notice the language used in 1 Corinthians 10 that all were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Years ago in my in my ministry and life, I was a part of a tradition that held to the view, very common view in the United States of America among evangelicals, very common view that the only people who should ever be baptized are adults or maybe adolescents when they make a profession of faith. They're the only people who should ever receive baptism. And I was a part of a tradition that taught and, and preached that, and we looked down on people who baptized young children or infants. But one of the texts, one of the uh, sections of God's Word that began to change my mind about that was actually 1 Corinthians 10. Because I started thinking, well, what does Paul mean when he says all were baptized into Moses? And you think about that story, right? That when the children of Israel left Egypt, they left household by household, family by family. And when they came to the sea, the story doesn't say that only the adult men went across the Red Sea or only the adult women went across the sea and that the children were left on the shore to fend for themselves or that the children had to find a different route around the Red Sea. You know, it says all were baptized into Moses when they went through the Red Sea under the cloud. Now, I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because we know how tragic it would be, how terrible it would be if those families had said as they got to the shore of the sea, sorry, children, you can't come with us because you're not old enough. You don't understand all the things we do. You don't have a grasp of all the things we do. So you wait here, and when you're old enough and you reach the magical age of accountability, then you can decide if you want to come across or not. Well, that's not at all what happened in the story, is it? See, God relates to his people covenantally. He relates to his people covenantally, household by household, not simply by individuals. Now, certainly every individual who went across the Red Sea had responsibility to trust and obey God. And I'll get to that in a moment. But I simply want to point out how interesting it is that Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church and reminding them that their forefathers all were baptized into Moses household by household. Why is that important? Because when you read the letter and you know anything about Paul's ministry in Corinth, you see that that's exactly what went down with him. For example, in Acts 18, when he first went there and preached the gospel, the Lord Jesus appeared to him in a vision and said, stay and preach here. I have many people in this city. And Paul certainly didn't feel that way uh, based on some things that were happening. But one of the things we see is that he baptized the household of Crispus, a synagogue ruler. And then in the letter of 1 Corinthians, he talks about how he baptized the household of Stephanas. And he baptized other people, but he says, I don't really remember who I baptized. Paul wasn't one of those pastors that went around 
putting notches in the back of his Bible for all the number of people he baptized. He just knew he baptized a couple of households. And he's reminding the Corinthians that, yeah, I baptized some of you, but I don't know who it is. So don't say you are of Paul, because I'm not claiming you. And don't say you are of Apollos, because he wouldn't claim you either. You are in Christ, whether you were baptized by Paul, Cephas, or Apollos. You see? But the point is, it's household baptism that Paul is pointing out here, reminding the church of their union and communion with Christ and with each other. You've all come into this, household by household, individual by individual, and you have responsibilities. And so the point I'm trying to make here briefly is that covenant household baptism was part and parcel of Paul's ministry, of his teaching, and of his practice. We see that clearly in the in the scriptures now i know that that rubs some people the wrong way and maybe not here but uh, some of our brothers and sisters don't agree with this view and i've heard things like this along the way so i want to this is to help give you kind of a defense uh, uh, an apologetic to people who say well i can't believe you would baptize all of those infants and little children right Uh, why would you do that And the argument is that they're too young to understand, they're too little to grasp uh, these things. And so there's actually a a secret view in some of our brothers and sisters who don't accept the baptism of infants and children, that salvation is by knowledge. It's by how much you know and understand, but that's not what the scriptures teach. And so we don't worry about how much our children know or don't know, or for that matter, how how much adults know or don't know. We're not justified by our knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures. We're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? But I do want to point out something interesting here. When you go back and look at the context of the story that Paul is teaching, he's telling us that the story of Israel is our story as well. For people who are concerned about the young ages of all the children who receive baptism in our our congregations... I like to remind people that when you look at the story that Paul mentioned, that it was only the little children and only the young children who were baptized into Moses who actually reached the promised land. All of those adults, all of those big people who were baptized into Moses perished in the wilderness. Why? Well, they had more understanding than all the little children, right? They saw and experienced more than the little children could even remember. And so why in the world would the little children survive the wilderness and make it into the promised land? Well, we're going to get to that in a moment. But the main reason is because that older generation that knew better and saw more and had more experience with God, they perished in the wilderness because they didn't believe God. They didn't walk by faith. They were the ones who grumbled and complained, and they were the ones who turned back at Kadesh Barnea. They were the ones who turned that 12-day journey into a 40-year experience in the wilderness, not their children. They were the ones who were trying to hide behind their children. So read the story again, and you'll see that time and time again, the big people were telling God, we can't obey you. And we can't follow you anymore because we've got all of these little people to worry about. 
And our little people, our little children are going to become a prey. They're going to be slaughtered and injured and taken captive by our enemies. We can't do this because we've got little children. As a pastor, I can't tell you how many times people have tried to use their children as an excuse for something. We need to leave this church and go to a different church because our children need X, Y, and Z and your church can't offer it. Always the same thing. We want to use little children as an excuse. We want to hide behind them. We think they're strong enough to defend us against the Lord, but we think they're too weak to come to the Lord as Jesus says. Let the little children come to me. So I just simply want to point out that there's no need to worry about the younger generation. God has made promises to them like he's made to you. And if they walk by faith and not by sight, they will make it away, make their way across the wilderness and enter the promised land as God promised. I also want to point out something interesting here. And I want to couch it in a story first so you know that there's no teeth in what I'm about to say. I'm not saying this tooth and claw, okay? Uh, this past week, I was invited to be a part of a prayer, uh, National Day of Prayer, and I was invited to pray at City Hall with a group of pastors from our community. It was raining cats and dogs when we arrived at City Hall, and a lot of people were complaining about the drops of water all over them. You know, as they came here, we were trying to shake off the water. And one of our local pastors, who is a part of a charismatic church, came in. He's a, he's a very friendly man. Uh, I'd, I'd visit with him a little bit that morning. So he came in and he heard all the grumbling and complaining and everyone's shaking the water off. And for some reason, he alluded to this story. And he said, he said, stop your complaining. Remember that the, people, the children of Israel passed through the Red Sea and they only got a few drops of water on them and God delivered them. And so I filed that away because I thought after we pray, I'm going to go talk to him about this. And so I went up and tongue-in-cheek, I said, hey, you mentioned that the children of Israel were sprinkled when they passed through the Red Sea and that God still delivered them. And he said, that's right. I said, in that story, who was immersed? Because Paul says they were baptized into Moses, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, in that story, who, who was immersed? And he thought about it, and he covered his mouth. I said, tell me who was immersed. And he's like, the Egyptians. I said, isn't that ironic that some of our brothers and sisters insist upon immersion only? And yet in the scriptures, when you see people immersed, it doesn't always end so well for them, right? Like the Egyptians. So take heart. Those of you who practice or have received baptism by sprinkling or pouring, that is a proper mode of baptism. In full disclosure, I want to say that I was baptized by immersion. And I have no conscience reason to believe that I should be rebaptized. I'm simply saying that there is a better way, and God's way is the better way. And so think about that. As the children of Israel passed through on dry ground, it is likely with the wind blowing that they were misted, they were sprinkled, and they were thus baptized into Moses. That's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it is something to think about, isn't it? Okay. Now, what's happening in the story is this. In this story, the children of Israel were baptized into Moses. Paul is tying this to our baptism, saying, look, our story is like their story. We were all baptized into Christ. We were baptized out of 
the world of sin and death and slavery. We were baptized into Christ who is leading us through the wilderness into the new heavens and new earth. And like our forefathers, we face a variety of challenges along the way. But remember that God is faithful to a thousand generations of those who love and obey Him. And so in light of this Exodus story, we can say something about baptism, our own personal baptism, and then the baptism of our churches. We can say that baptism marks the beginning of our journey across the wasteland into the promised land. In other words, it's not the destination. It's not the most important decision someone can make. That's not what Paul is saying. No, the most important decisions people can make are the decisions to repent and believe the gospel day after day after day. It's ongoing. And so to make it all the way across the wasteland, all the way across the wilderness into this new heavens and new earth that's promised requires each and every one of us to walk by faith. It requires us to bring our children up in the Lord so that they walk by faith and they turn from their sins and trust in Christ. It requires us to show them the way in that. It requires us to walk by faith in Christ who is the rock who follows us through the wilderness on this journey and that He fills us with all of our spiritual needs. Notice what he says, uh, what Paul says. He talks about the blessings that the children of Israel experienced in the wilderness. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Then verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ knows that we need encouragement. And so Christ gives us his life-giving word. He gives us law and gospel. He gives us the Psalms and the prophets. He gives us himself in his word. He knows that we need nourishment. And so he gives us spiritual food and spiritual drink. We call that the Lord's Supper, communion. He feeds us himself. He gives us his flesh to eat and his blood to drink. And that nourishes us and gives us grace and sustains us on our journey through the wilderness. We need refreshment. And so Christ gives us His Holy Spirit to abide with us, to dwell in us, to seal us for the day of redemption, to guide us through the wilderness. And Paul acknowledges that God graciously supplies all these things to His people. And then he points out that terrible word that I mentioned some time ago, the word nevertheless. Nevertheless. Look, feel the, you can feel the turn, right, in Paul's uh, attitude and spirit. Nevertheless. It's as if Paul is saying, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, and yet here we are with all these baptism clicks. Instead of enjoying our union with Christ, we are fostering division. He looks around at the church and says, members of us are indulging their flesh in a variety of ways. There's idol worship and sexual immorality and testing the Lord's patience. There's grumbling and complaining. All of these things that our forefathers did and they got into really big trouble for it. 
God was not pleased with them. Many of them perished in the wilderness. And so this is a warning, right? It's a warning to the church at Corinth, and it's a warning we should hear today. All of that prompts Paul to use the example of Israel's baptism into Moses at the Red Sea to warn the church at Corinth about the real dangers of abusing the sacraments and presuming on God's grace. The story highlights a couple of things for us, doesn't it? On one hand, it highlights the kindness of God towards us, which we've focused on for the last few minutes, the kindness of God. That in the kindness of God, all of God's baptized people are initiated into the covenant community of Christ by water and by spirit and by the word of the gospel. But then there's the severity of God as well. And in God's severity, he was not pleased with most of them. And their bodies were laid low in the desert. And here's why. As we make our way through the wilderness of this world, through the wasteland of this world, we must keep in mind that God requires all of us to walk by faith in the fear, the love, and the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is clear that God is pleased to save all who do these things. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. He's pleased to do it. He is uh, happy to do these things for us. But it is also clear that he will not be pleased with any who refuses to do them. Now there's a difference between struggling, stumbling towards doing these things, right? There's no requirement here to do it perfectly and flawlessly. We see people struggle all the time with their faith, but they're struggling towards eternity. They're struggling with Christ in view. They're trying to get there, right? Maybe stumbling, getting sidetracked, but getting back on track. It's a faith struggle. We all have that. There's a real difference in the person who does that and the person who just says, I'm not doing any of this. I don't care. I want to go back to Egypt. I don't like it out here in the wilderness. I miss my pots of meat. I don't mind a little bit of slavery so long as I have three squares a day and a roof over my head. I don't mind a whip on my back every once in a while. I don't have it as bad as my neighbor. So there are people who want to go back under a yoke of slavery. They would prefer to live in Egypt because they're Egyptians at heart. That's the person that does not please the Lord. The person who pleases the Lord is a person who is not an Egyptian at heart, even if on the outside sometimes they still have a little bit of the vestiges of their former slavery or still wear the scars or still have the struggles that come along with that former way of life. But they're being led by the Spirit into a new world, into Christ, into a better way of life. That person is pleasing to the Lord and He's pleased to save them. So what, was, what must we do in light of all these things? I want to end with you know, a word of encouragement. And this might surprise you. If you haven't heard this in a while, I hope you're encouraged by it. But here's something that I want to urge you to do. Recently, uh, I sent a note to a couple of my children and reminded them that this is the day upon which you were baptized into Christ. And so I want to remind you that you're a baptized Christian. And then I sent them a note. I copy and pasted from the Westminster Larger Catechism, 
question 167 to encourage them in their walk with Christ. Last week in our church, three little children were baptized into Christ. And I gave the same exhortation to the whole church, not to the children yet, but to the whole church. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 167. Here's what it says, and here's my encouragement, my exhortation to you and to me. The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long especially in the time of temptation when we are present at the administration of baptism to others. But notice that, especially at the time of temptation. It is said of Martin Luther that in times of temptation, he would remind himself, I am a baptized Christian. I am a baptized Christian. I am a baptized Christian. And it's not to boast in himself, but it's to remind, it was to remind himself that his identity was in Jesus Christ. In times of temptation, as you make your way through the wilderness, remind yourselves, we are baptized Christians. Our identity is in Christ. But here's how we improve upon our baptism. The answer in the catechism goes on to say that we improve upon our baptism, especially in times of temptation, by serious and thankful consideration of the nature of baptism and of the ends for which Christ instituted baptism, the privileges and the benefits conferred and sealed thereby, and our solemn vow made therein. Number two, by being humbled for our sinful defilement, are falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism and our engagements. Number three, by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament. Number four, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the mortifying of sin and the quickening of grace. Mortifying means the putting of putting to death of sin. Quickening means the making to life of grace. And finally, by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those that have therein given up their names to Christ. Conversation here doesn't mean just the way we talk to each other. It's talking about a way of life. And then think of this, of giving up their names to Christ. When you come into Christ, you lose your former identity. You give up your name. But you take on the triune name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He writes His name on you. And He writes your name on the palm of His hand. And in all these things, we walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same Spirit into one body. And so, again, to remind you, encouragements. And God has delivered you out of Egypt, out of sin and death and slavery. He's baptized you into Christ. He's given you a wealth of spiritual benefits. At the table, we'll enjoy them later. But He also has His Word 
the Spirit dwelling in you. He's given you all you need for life and godliness, all the resources you need to make your way through the wasteland of this world to reach your final destination, which is the new heavens and new earth, this promised land that God has extended to you in Christ. If you trust Him, turning from your sin, you'll make it all the way home. So the warning there is to trust Him. Don't neglect to lean on Him, to have faith in Him, and don't neglect to improve upon your baptism. These graces are given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Let us pray together. Oh God, we thank you for the tender mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the power of the gospel to liberate us from the clutches of the devil, from the evil Pharaoh who abused and mistreated us. Thank you for delivering us from bondage in that house of slavery and leading us into the freedom of the house of God. Thank you for bringing our families together in Christ and for offering us the promise of eternal life in the new heavens and new earth. In the midst of our struggles, in the midst of uh, the wilderness, we are faced with a variety of temptations. Often we want to turn back. Sometimes we want to quit and stop where we are. Sometimes we wander astray and get lost on the way. But, oh God, we pray that your spirit will steer us aright. Bring us back into the way of Christ that we may walk in his truth and life. We pray that the warnings we hear in scripture will not ring hollow, but ring true for us. For these warnings are given to us so that we might not presume on your grace. I pray for those among us who might be in the midst of some struggle or in the grip of some temptation, that they'll remember that their identity is in Christ, that they'll find power in the gospel and help from the Spirit in their time of need. Thank you, O God, for speaking to us through your word and for hearing our prayers as we offer them through Christ our Lord. Amen.